Voy a ponerme la vacuna Prevnar 20 porque estoy en riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica, la cual pudiera llevarme al hospital. Así que preguntaré sobre Prevnar 20. 65 años o más, puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar 20. Vacuna conjugada antineumocósica 20 valente, una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita Prevnar 20 en español.com. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar 20. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, this is Whitney. And this is Melissa from Colts Crimes and Cabernet. We wanted to share some exciting news with you. On our journey of navigating advocacy through this true crime space, we believe that the name Colts Crimes and Cabernet no longer reflects our position on ethical true crime content. As much as we have grown to love our original name and our journey to get here, our evolution from that first glass of wine between friends to meeting with family members, survivors, and fellow case advocates has forever changed our stance. We're committed to amplifying the voices of victims, survivors, and experts who are fighting for justice and change in the criminal justice system. We're here to empower you to also become advocates for change no matter where or who you are. That being said, we would like to introduce you to our new name, Navigating Advocacy. We invite you to join us in Navigating Advocacy through the murky waters of true crime. Let's make a difference together. We'll see you next week on Navigating Advocacy, available wherever you get your podcasts. Exciting announcement! Join me at the True Crime and Paranormal Podcast Festival. Hey everyone, I have some incredible news to share with all of you. I am absolutely thrilled to announce that I will be attending the True Crime and Paranormal Podcast Festival this year. The festival is an amazing gathering of passionate podcasters, enthusiasts, and experts who are all dedicated to exploring the fascinating realms of true crime and the paranormal. But it's not just about spooky stories and thrilling mysteries. It's about something much more important. The festival focuses on advocacy and ethics in true crime and paranormal podcasting. It's a platform where we can come together, share knowledge, and discuss the responsible and respectful ways to approach these sensitive subjects. I can't express how excited I am to be a part of this event. I'll have the opportunity to meet fellow podcasters, engage in thought-provoking discussions, and learn from some of the most brilliant minds in the industry. It's an experience you won't want to miss. And guess what? I have an exclusive offer for all of you amazing followers and listeners. 
Use my special coupon code Lainey during registration at truecrimepodcastfestival.com and you'll receive a fantastic 15% discount on your tickets. So mark your calendars, gather your fellow true crime advocates and paranormal enthusiasts, and join me at the True Crime and Paranormal Podcast Festival. Let's celebrate our shared love for these intriguing genres while embracing the importance of ethics and advocacy within the podcasting community. I can't wait to see you all there. Don't forget to use my coupon code LANY for that awesome discount, and I'll see you soon. Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to True Crime Cases. I'm your host, Lainey. In the realm of criminal investigations, DNA has emerged as a pivotal tool in solving long-dormant cases. One such breakthrough occurred in the identification of the notorious Golden State Killer, also known as the East Area Rapist, more than four decades after his heinous crime spree began. The key to his capture lay in the realm of genealogical DNA analysis. The innovative approach involves searching genealogical databases, not for an exact match to the perpetrator's DNA, but rather for a closely related profile. This strategic maneuver aimed to identify individuals who were likely to be connected to the criminal. The success achieved in this landmark case opened new horizons for law enforcement agencies, inspiring them to employ similar genealogical techniques to solve a wide array of crimes. Notably, labs like Othram have played a significant role in this endeavor, expanding the application of genealogical DNA analysis in crime solving. However, it is important to note that traditional investigative methods still play a vital role in bringing criminals to justice. For instance, convicted offender DNA databases have proven invaluable in linking perpetrators to unsolved crimes, shining a light on their dark deeds. Today, we delve into the narratives of two killers who seem destined to elude justice indefinitely until the relentless pursuit of DNA evidence caught up with them. Okay, on to the show. March 9, 1979, in the small city of Salem, Oregon, a young woman named Jamie Landers, just 18 years old, found herself confined within the walls of Fairview Hospital and Training Center. You see, Jamie was neurodivergent, grappling with challenges that remained shrouded in mystery. For the past decade, she had been shuttled between various state hospitals, seeking solace and treatment for undisclosed issues. Inside Fairview Hospital, a place meant to provide care and support, Jamie's life took an ominous turn. Her instructors, tasked with guiding her through her troubled journey, would later recount a disturbing pattern. Janie had what they called spells, moments of desperation, perhaps where she would attempt to break free from their watchful eyes. The details surrounding Janie's struggles and the circumstances that led her to Fairview Hospital remain veiled in secrecy, but the echoes of her story linger, calling out for answers and justice. As we delve deeper, the pieces of the puzzle may slowly come together. On March 14, 1979, Janie's body was found by a couple who were on their way to their Christmas tree farm for maintenance. Janie was still fully clothed, and she was found just off of Oregon Highway 214, about 12 miles away from Silverton, Oregon. Investigators initially believed she had been killed by a single stab wound to the neck, 
but the pathologist determined that she had been killed by three blows to her head with a blunt instrument and had multiple stab wounds. Besides this, Janie also had multiple defensive wounds. They could not determine where she had been murdered or if her body had been moved after her death. Police had little to go on and over the next few days interviewed dozens of people who might have seen the young woman around the time of her death. Witnesses had seen Janie with an unknown man on Strong Road Northeast near the hospital. Janie and the man were in a car, a newer gold mid-sized car, possibly a Plymouth or a Dodge. The man was described as a white male, 35 to 45 years old, about 5 feet 10 inches tall. He had light brown or blonde hair that was long on top and short on the sides, combed back. Some witnesses said his hair looked as if it had been cut with the use of a bowl. Witnesses described him as about 200 pounds and stated that he had a pot belly. He was wearing a tan or mustard yellow pair of pants. More details were released over the next few days, and on March 30th, investigators revealed the last employee to see Janie alive had spotted her talking to the suspect about an hour before she was seen with him by other witnesses. At that time, Janie was in front of the hospital, therefore still on the premises and not absent without leave so the employee did not stop to pick her up. Many in the community later criticized the employee for not stopping and picking up Janie, but the superintendent of the hospital said that such actions were discouraged to avoid liability if the employee were in an automobile accident. Other witnesses said they believed the man had been seen eating in the cafeteria of the hospital that same day. Unfortunately, the case went cold and remained so for several years. Her sister, Joyce Hooper, never gave up hope and would contact the Oregon State Police regularly to ask them to reopen her case. She struck gold when she contacted them in 2015, 36 years after her sister's death, and the OSP detective Steve Hinkle got the case. He reviewed hundreds of documents on the autopsy information in his investigation, and his thoroughness paid off. Recognizing that Janie had put up quite a struggle, Detective Hinkle believed her killer had probably cut himself in the attack. Based on this theory and with the improved scientific examination methods now available to them, forensic experts retested Janie's shirt and found a section that had male blood on it. In 2016, DNA revealed that man's identity as Gerald Kenneth Dunlap. Dunlap was sentenced to life in prison in Tennessee back in 1961, for raping a woman during an armed robbery. But, as is often the case, he didn't stay imprisoned for life. He was paroled 12 years later and moved to California, where he was forced to register as a sex offender. He then moved to Oregon because, at the time, they did not have a sex offender registry, so he could live without facing the consequences of his actions. He settled in the Salem area and found a job in the laundry at Fairview Hospital and Training Center the same center where Janie had been receiving treatment. Although the Fairview Center had closed in 2000, Detective Hinkle was able to locate employee records and discovered that Dunlap was working at the center on the day Janie went missing. Dunlap was never charged for the murder of Janie. In 1996, he had been convicted of felony sexual abuse on a female relative and sentenced to prison, where he died in 2002. Detective Hinkle was able to retrieve Janie's earrings from evidence and return them to her family, telling the Statesman Journal in Salem, Oregon, We're grateful we could do this for Janie. 
We're hopeful her family can find closure to this horrific chapter of their lives. Unfortunately, not every family gets to find this sort of closure. When a case goes cold, there is always a chance that family members will pass away before any answers can be found. On May 29, 1973, Lisa Jo Shaner, 22 years old, left her parents' home in Tucson, Arizona, and headed for the airport at 9.20 p.m. She was picking up her husband, Gary, who had been discharged from the military while serving overseas and was arriving home to see their eight-week-old son. But when Gary landed, he did not find Lisa waiting for him. This was incredibly unlike her, so he called her father, James Miller, to figure out what had happened and where she was. James also did not manage to find Lisa, but found the javelin in the airport parking lot, the car she had been driving that night. Her purse was found on the back seat. James Miller was uniquely situated to try and locate his daughter, as he was an FBI agent. James immediately notified his supervisor and the senior agent of the Tucson office, Kermit Johnson, that his daughter was missing. Another FBI agent and the local sheriff both joined to help them locate Lisa. They interviewed anyone who might have seen her that night, people inside the airport, ticket agents, and parking attendants. They established a perimeter and then searched all the vehicles in the parking lot. James drove the javelin back to the FBI office since his prints were already in the car. And later that next morning, the car was taken to the Tucson Police Department in an attempt to find any other fingerprints that might give them a lead to follow. In the days that followed Lisa's disappearance, the FBI obtained the manifest for all flights that arrived and departed between 9 o'clock p.m. and 11 p.m. the night she disappeared. They also reached out to the local military installations, Davis Mothin Air Force Base and Fort Huachuca, and asked for the names of all military personnel stationed there. They contacted other FBI field offices and law enforcement agencies in the Southwest to see if there were any similar crimes under investigation. In a short period of time, the FBI had interviewed thousands of people regarding the disappearance of Lisa Joe. They even spoke with a psychic who told them that she saw Lisa Joe in a dark body of water. So, based on this, they searched the cesspools adjacent to the sewer processing plant. Approximately a week later, investigators received a tip that a woman had been seen leaping from a car. Two men jumped out after her and began beating her. Unfortunately, this tip led nowhere. In the weeks following Lisa Joe's disappearance, her father posted a reward for information leading to the discovery of Lisa Joe. By this time, investigators had developed three theories as to what had happened. First, they theorized that Lisa Joe had run away. However, after talking to her husband and her family, they dropped that theory. Lisa Joe was extremely happy and had a newborn son and was excited that her husband was coming home. The next theory authorities had was that she had been kidnapped for ransom. With no note and no phone calls, though, this one was also dropped as improbable. Sadly, the third theory was that she had been kidnapped and raped, which investigators believed meant she had been killed, so that she could not identify her attackers. Still, searches continued, and James did not give up on finding his daughter. After four months of searches turning up nothing, two hikers found decomposed remains at Fort Huachuca on Sunday, September 16, 1973. 
Fort Huachuca is approximately 75 miles away from Tucson, and agents drove to the location as quickly as possible. The remains were found in a shallow grave adjacent to the Garden Canyon stream on the south part of the installation, on a road called Garden Canyon Road. Dental records were used to positively identify the remains as belonging to Lisa Jo Shaner. After two separate autopsies, a cause of death could still not be determined due to the state of decomposition her body was under. Unfortunately, it would take three more murders and almost four decades before Lisa Joe's killer was brought to justice. And tragically, her father died in 2007 before any arrests were made. The next known murder by the same killer took place five years later, on August 2, 1978. The nude body of a female was found in a brushy area near August Derleth Park in Sauk City, Wisconsin, about 180 feet away from the Wisconsin River. Police discovered the body after her assailant contacted police to tell them where to look. She had been shot once in the back of the head. The victim was Mary Johnson, 24 years old. Mary was an attractive, petite young woman with long auburn hair who had only recently moved to the area in preparation of her upcoming nuptials. She worked at Cop's department store after having transferred there due to her relocation for the wedding. The Cop's food store managers described Mary as nice, quiet, and polite. At the time of her disappearance, he was the last person to see Mary and told reporters and police that she had left at 5 p.m. on August 1st, still wearing her cop's work smock. Sadly, Mary's wedding to her fiancé, Ronald Golanek, was scheduled for the following Saturday, August 5, 1978, three days after her body was found. The pair had met in the city of Stevens Point, Wisconsin, and dated for four years before becoming engaged only eight months before Mary's death. They were supposed to get married in Stevens Point and had been due to drive out on Thursday. When Ronald learned of Mary's murder, he drove out there on his own. Mary was abducted from near her car at around 5.05 on Tuesday, August 1st, just minutes after her manager had last seen her. Seven hours later at 12.05 a.m. on August 2nd, William Zamastil contacted a Dane County bailiff at home and said, I think I heard a girl. William Zamastel had become acquainted with the bailiff when he served a year in jail for an unreported charge. Zamastel was named a trustee in the jail, which means he was given more freedoms than other inmates. The bailiff met Zamastel at the Bronkwood Shopping Center on Madison's west side. Zamastel was driving Mary's car, inside of which police found two pistols. From there, the bailiff took Zamastel to the Dane County Jail where he then revealed the location of Mary's body. As the investigation into Mary's murder progressed, police spoke with Zamastil's sister-in-law, Jackie. She said the last she had seen him had been Tuesday morning around 7 a.m. when she woke up to go to work. When Jackie returned home around 6 p.m. Tuesday night, Zamastil's suitcase and clothes were gone, along with her small children's piggy banks. William Zamastil had recently moved in with his brother and sister-in-law after arriving in Madison from California in 1978. He told his family he had recently gotten divorced and when he arrived, he was broke. He had lived in California for eight years where he worked at various truck stops changing tires. His current foreman told reporters he was a hell of a nice guy and that he was really friendly with the customers. Zamastil revealed the graphic details of what happened that Tuesday night to law enforcement. 
The newspapers did not reveal the graphic terms he used to describe the rape, but they did say that he told police, I was in cops' parking lot. A girl got in the car. I went over to the car, showed her I had a gun, and told her to get in the passenger seat. We drove around for some time and headed for South City. We pulled into a park and I took the 45 and we went down to the river. We talked for some time on the riverbank and I said, let's walk, and we did. And it was getting dark and I told her to take off her clothes. Zama still told police he had been drinking and said that at one point, Mary had told him, I'll do anything, don't hurt me. Zama still told police he did not know why he shot her. Even without his confession, it wouldn't have been long before police contacted him as he had left a very large clue behind. His wallet was found near Mary's feet. Her purse was nearby, and her work clothes were underneath her. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo, and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. An autopsy revealed that Mary had died from a single gunshot wound to the back of her neck, which struck her windpipe and spinal cord. Police interviewed the young woman who Zamastil had been with in the hours before he kidnapped Mary. Before he had contacted the bailiff late that Tuesday night, police were already looking for him because they had received reports that a man matching his description was shooting a gun out of the open window of a car. The car was being driven by a female friend or girlfriend of Zamastil, who later told police she had dropped him off around 5 o'clock p.m. at Whitney Way and O'Donnell Road in Madison. She told police he had been drinking and had stolen two pistols, although she did not know who he had stolen them from. She told investigators that Zamastil was supposed to take her and her two young boys shopping for school clothes at Tuesday night. He phoned her that afternoon to say that his car was broken down and he needed her to pick him up. When she met him, he had already been drinking beer and had a suitcase with him, though she was not aware of what was in it. The couple drove to a friend's house in Cross Plains, where Zamastil drank more. Afterwards, they went to her house and Zamastil took a short nap before she woke him up to hold him to his promise of taking her children shopping. When they began heading to cops, Zamastil opened the suitcase and brandished the two pistols, telling her he had purchased them. In reality, he had stolen them from his brother. Zamastil's girlfriend said he rolled down the window and told her to go slow. Since he had been drinking, she tried to remain quiet so she wouldn't aggravate him. But when he began shooting out of the front window, she told him to put the guns away because someone might get hurt. 
She also said that the shell casings were flying into the back seat with her children. When they got to Cops to shop, she took the children inside. She was supposed to meet Zamastil inside, and when he never showed up, she bought the clothes herself, angry because he had lied to her and her children. She vowed to let him have it when she saw him again, but she never did, because he was arrested just a few hours later. When she left Cops, she drove back to her friend's house in Cross Plains for a short time before returning home. When she pulled into her driveway, police were waiting for her, investigating the reports of someone shooting from the car. She told them everything that had happened that day, and she later told reporters, He was in trouble all the time, but he never killed anyone as far as I know. I was never afraid of him. He never laid a hand on me. He was good to the kids. He would take them shopping and fishing. None of the other guys I go out with would do that. They only want one thing, and I don't like that. Bill never forced himself on me. The first she heard of Zamastil's arrest was in a news report. She stated that she purchased the papers later to clip the articles so she could show them to her sons and tell them she didn't want them growing up to be like that. Although she said Zamastil did not do drugs that she was aware of, she believed he was on something that night. To her, there was no other possible explanation for his actions. Sadly, Mary's funeral was held at the same time that she should have been getting married. Zamastil later pleaded guilty to first-degree murder, against his counsel's advice. However, just months later, Zamastil tried to withdraw the plea. The court denied this request and sentenced him to life in prison for the murder charge, and an additional 20 years for sexual assault. It was said at the time of sentencing that he could be released after serving as little as 10 years, but thankfully, that was not the case. As I mentioned earlier, Zamastil was responsible for another two murders, these two happening not long before the murder of Mary. Zamastil had arrived in Wisconsin from California in June 1978, years after he had been convicted of Mary Johnson's murder. Cold case investigators began looking at Zamastil for a double murder that took place just outside of Barstow, California, in February 1978, just before he left the state. In this case, two nude bodies were found March 26, 1978, by a sheep herder tending to his flock. The bodies were badly decomposed and had been left in a ravine two miles east of Hodge Road, off Interstate 15, 10 miles south of Barstow. Despite the rate of decomposition, a mother of two missing teenagers was able to make a positive identification due to their jewelry as well as a tattoo on her son's arm. Jacqueline Bradshaw, 18 years old, and her brother Malcolm, 17 years old, had been hitchhiking home from Las Vegas, where they had gone to help a friend move. The teens had phoned their mother from a go-low gas station on East Main Street in Barstow, on February 27th, to tell her that they had found a ride to San Gabriel from a young man. Investigators released a description of the man and his vehicle, stating the man was 5'9", 130 pounds, and blonde, and his vehicle was an orange Datsun pickup with Nevada plates. An autopsy revealed the siblings had died of blunt force trauma. Investigators believe that they had been killed in the same spot where their bodies were found, but due to winds and heavy rains, there was little evidence found at the site. The case went cold for decades, despite Samastil telling investigators in 1982 that he had committed other murders and that the one we're talking about, one of them should have had a big hole in their skull. 
Both Jacqueline and Malcolm had a half-inch square holes in their skulls when they were found. On May 28, 2004, Zamastil admitted in court to murdering and molesting the siblings. Zamastil agreed to a plea bargain for 25 years to life in prison to be served concurrently in Wisconsin with his first homicide charge. California prosecutors did state that if he were to be paroled in Wisconsin, he could be incarcerated in California. In 2009, after years of investigation, which included talking to Zamastil several times, he was finally also charged for the 1973 murder of Lisa Jo Shaner. A federal jury convicted him of her murder, and he received another life sentence. Two years too late for her father to get the closure he deserved. There were several other cases that Zamastil was the main suspect in, including the 1975 murder of Deborah Carrick, who was traveling from Maryland to California to attend a friend's wedding. As was common at that time, she was hitchhiking. Her body was bound on September 9, 1975, off Highway 65 between Cameron and Grand Canyon National Park. She died from blunt force trauma to the head. At the time, Zama still worked as a tow truck driver in the area. Another murder that investigators tried to link to Zamastil was the 1968 murder of Christine Rothschild on the University of Wisconsin-Madison campus. However, not everyone agrees Zamastil was responsible. Author Michael Arntfield declared that medical student Niels Jorgensen killed Christine, as Jorgensen had apparently been stalking Christine, at least according to her best friend on campus. Her case, like Deborah's, remains open. A final case potentially linked to Zamastil was that of a young man in Arizona in 1977. Scott Allison, a 21-year-old U.S. Army soldier, was heading to Bakersfield to visit relatives when he decided to sleep under the stars in his sleeping bag. On September 5, 1977, 100 miles from home, Scott parked his 1977 Chevrolet Monza and fell asleep outside, lulled by the comfort he found at night in the wide-open desert. While sleeping, someone bludgeoned him with a rock and stole his car. Investigators have not found a definitive link between this killing and Zamastil, but he is the primary person of interest. We can only hope that the cases of Deborah, Christine, and Scott can also be solved in some way, with DNA or through any other form of evidence. At the very, very least, we can be thankful that Zamastil did not get away with three murders. And that justice was found for Janie. Lisa Joe, Mary, Jacqueline, and Malcolm, hopefully bringing peace to all who knew and loved them. Okay, listeners, thank you for joining me this episode as we file away another true crime case. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, please review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. It really does help. You can also find us on social media. We're active on Twitter for now, true crime underscore cases, Facebook if you search for true crime cases with Lainey, and Instagram at true crime cases with Lainey. And of course, our website is truecrimecasespodcast.com. We'd love to hear your episode suggestions, so feel free to send us an email, tcfcpod at gmail.com. This episode was researched and written by Susie St. John with content editing by Jesse Hawk. Audio engineering provided by the best in the business, Neeks at We Talk of Dreams. Check them out on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or WeTalkOfDreams.com.